Josh, I haven't seen you for a while. You look tan and you acquired some new jewelry. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, where you been? Uh, I got married uh, on June 15th. I married my girlfriend of 14 years, my high school sweetheart. We finally took the leap and got married in Oceanside at the San Luis Rey Mission. We had our reception in Temecula and it was the best day of my life. You knew you had to say how many years you've been together, right? Because I was going to call that out anyway. I wanted to avoid you asking me how many years we had dated, but yeah, I was 14 and I get a lot of, I get a lot of slack for that. So, well, it was a beautiful day and the ambiance was great. I mean, set the stage for what the ambiance was like that day. Yeah, it was just, we wanted the very outdoor, it was on a vineyard. So the farmhouse tables with just really bright pink lighting and we wanted just to, it to be fun and for everyone to feel like, you know, they could let loose and enjoy the day and enjoy the moment and celebrate our love. And I felt like that's the way it was. It came out exactly the way we wanted it to. So we had just a great day and we went on our honeymoon to Cabo this last weekend and talked about it the entire time of how much we had fun and how much we enjoyed spending all of our time with all of our closest family and friends. And thank you guys for being there. You guys seem like you guys were ready to dance. I mean, I liked that. So that was good. I don't think there was a single person there that wasn't having an amazing time. I mean, the sky was beautiful. The weather was perfect. It was just a. I mean, I can name a few people who look like they're sleeping or not having (laughs) that good of a time, but we'll save that for another day. It It was a beautiful reception. Right. Thank you guys. Yeah. We were really happy with the way it came out and just happy to start our, our next chapter being married. Well, you guys deserve it and we wish you all the happiness. Thank you. You guys ready to start the show? Let's go. I'm ready. All right. Let's start the music. Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matthew Thiel, investment advisor with RPA Wealth Management. I'm joined by the founder and president, Brent Pasqua. Hey, everybody. How's it going today, Brent? Doing good. Glad to be here. Good. And then joining us, as always, our newlywed investment advisor with RPA Wealth Management, Joshua Winterswijk. Josh, what do we have on deck for today's show? First, I just want to see, do I sound different now that I'm married? Oh, you sound like big married guy, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to start today's show, though, uh, really excited about all the topics, but... To start our show, we're going to look at popular personal financial rules of thumb and discuss whether we love or hate them. It's similar to a very popular fantasy football article that's written every year by uh, Matthew Barry from ESPN that we like to joke and have fun about. So since fantasy football is coming up, we thought this love-hate segment, well, you guys will enjoy. So I hope everyone does. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fantasy guy. I'm trying not to take it too seriously this year. But Matthew Barry's article is always good. I feel like he misses on every recommendation. But So just do the opposite? <laughs> yeah, like a, a good idea is to do the opposite. Um, all right. Well, our first rule of thumb today is the 50-30-20 budgeting rule. So what this rule is, is you look at your after-tax income, so the money you've already been taxed on, and we divide it into spending buckets, or you could think kind of like cups of water. You spend 50% on your needs, 30% on your wants, and then you save 20%. If you have debt, you allocate the 20% towards paying down your debt. Brent, love it, hate it, what do you think? I really don't care for it all that much. And the reason why is because very few people could actually fit these percentages into those budgets to make them work. 
a lot of times people do have a much higher amount that needs to be applied to debt and their needs will sometimes exceed that 50%. So even though I don't love the percentage breakdown, I do like people having some sort of budget and knowing how to fit the percentages into the budget. But to me, the rule of thumb just doesn't really work. Wants should be taken down a lot if somebody does have a higher amount into debt. Wants need to get pushed aside, increase savings, increase payments to debt. But 30% on, on wants is a lot. So I'm not just not a big fan of those percentages. I don't see them fit into the mold for a lot of people, but they can work for some. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can easily take a doctor's budget, right? And they might want a Tesla with that 30%, but they probably need to pay that student loan down and maybe be allocating up to 40% of their income to get rid of those student loans as fast as possible. Joshua, love it, hate it. What do you think? I think there's things that I love and then about it and things that I hate about it. Things that I hate about it being a general rule of thumb is if your situation already has debt and expenses, like Brent said, that needs bucket might be filled very quickly. So when you look at the budgeting rule, you know, let's say it's $2,000 towards your needs, but you already have 2,500 worth of liabilities and needs and debt. So I don't like that. What I do love though, is just a really easy way to calculate your savings rate. So, you know, 20% of, if you're looking of what I should be saving, even if your income goes up or down, it's 20% of that monthly after-tax income. And it's a really quick, great way for someone to have a rule to start saving, which is really important, obviously. So, Completely agree. And, and what I've seen and what I think is a possible solution is someone needs to first figure out what their real expenses are. You know, if you sync up to a mint.com, you can find out what you're spending on wants, you can find out what you're spending on needs. And then adjust the percentages sort of accordingly to make it fit your own rule of thumb. 50, 30, 20 doesn't work for everybody, but creating some rule of thumb for budgeting can make sense for most. Yeah, it gives you just a good starting point, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And then I even think, taking it a step further, the part I like about it is the 20% savings. That's big because it's going to help you build up that emergency fund that we always talk about. And the emergency fund is usually, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, it's you take your expenses and basically multiply by three or multiply by six, right? So it's three to six months expenses in a savings account. Yep, that's correct. And so if you're saving 20% of your income on a monthly basis while sounding hard to do, it'll help you get to that emergency fund level. The other thing I, I don't like about this is the word budgeting to me sounds like the word dieting and dieting doesn't work right and neither does budgeting creating systems and ways to either save your money or control your food intake works a lot better than budgeting or dieting which is like automating all of it also right or even you know how you eat so maybe you're like well i'm gonna eat home-cooked meals every day of the week but saturday right it's creating a routine Exactly. Creating a routine, a system. Anything left on this 50, 30, 20 rule? No, I, th I think it's covered pretty well. And I like that you, you kind of mentioned how we create that saving, emergency savings rate. One thing I think that maybe we missed a little bit too is that 20% could also be completely towards debt if there's a lot of debt. So, right. I mean, I know Brent, you kind of touched on that, but I think that's important too. Again, to, for someone who's starting looking to how much should I be putting towards my debt? I just think that that's also important and, and a good love about the rule. Yeah. And actually to bring up what Brent was talking about on the debt side, I do a hundred percent agree with him that 
if you're in debt, you probably overspent your want bucket already. Right. So then <laughs> you need to increase your savings or debt pay down bucket by a dramatic margin. Like you don't really get 30% of wants. You maybe get 10 or 5% of wants. Right. You've already bought your wants. They're just on the credit card now. Yeah. Or you paid for it through education, right. whatever. It's just going to be a lot harder to create those routines you were talking about. Then. Yeah, it is. Cut those wants, people. All right. So our next rule of thumb has to do with life insurance. And, and this rule says that you need to have seven to 10 times your annual salary in life insurance. So putting that in dollars and cents, that means if you're making 100000 a year, you should be looking to purchase a life insurance policy that has 700000 to a million dollars in face value. Life insurance is an extremely complex topic. So let's kind of get some definitions out of the way. Josh, what's the difference between term insurance and permanent insurance or whole life insurance? So great question, Matt. I know we get this a lot. Um, this question asks to us. And first, I kind of just want to start with life insurance and what it provides. So it provides a, a death benefit. So if, you know, a person dies, it gives a lump sum to the beneficiaries. And then there's, you know, two very popular types of life insurance, like you mentioned, permanent life insurance or whole life life insurance, and then term. And the difference is, is you can kind of take it from the name. So permanent or whole life means that it remains in place for your whole life or for permanent until you pass. Also meaning it is more expensive. It's going to last you all the way until your dying day, hopefully, and it's going to be a lot more expensive with a side benefit of it can potentially build some cash value in it as well. And term life insurance is a lot more simple. It has a very specific premium payment. So it'll keep the same premium for a certain amount of time. And then after that term is done, the insurance just stops. And you can kind of relate it even to more like your auto insurance. Your, your payment stays the same for the year and you have like a renewal on it, but the term insurance has a specific time frame, So five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, with term insurance, if you have a 20 year term, you pay the same thing for the 20 years. If you don't die, there's no death benefit and the contract just expires. Yep. Biggest yeah. difference between the whole life. Pretty simple. Yeah, it expires. So for younger people, whole life insurance is probably quite expensive, right? So if we've established that you need a death benefit of 700000 to a million for every 100000 you're making, it's going to be very hard for someone in their 30s or 40s, right, to purchase a, a whole life insurance policy for a million dollars. I mean, that's going to be very expensive. Yeah, you're probably not wanting to fit that into your budget. Yeah, which is why term was created. Brent, who really needs life insurance? The people who need life insurance is basically anyone who would be financially affected if a spouse or a partner or a provider had passed away. Some people who provide for their family need life insurance. If you're married, if you have kids, if you're a single parent, if you own a business, those are all examples of people who would need life insurance. So do I need life insurance? Are you married? Yes. Then under the rule, potentially, yes, you would need life insurance. Yeah, I would think so too. What do you guys think about this rule? Is it a good rule of thumb? Love it, hate it? Josh, what do you think? Again, being a general rule of thumb, I am a believer of having life insurance. So is it a good starting place? Although I, I don't like what I hate about it is that life insurance I feel needs to be tailored to everyone's situation. And that rule of thumb might leave you underinsured, which is a huge threat as you're building wealth. And so... I don't like that, especially with insurance, about that general rule of thumb. So, I actually love it. 
especially being a dad and having a family, I see so many people that are actually underinsured. And I love it if a family is protecting themselves on the term insurance side. If something were to happen to me, being that my wife stays home and takes care of the kids, she was a teacher, she did work. Once our second child was born, she now stays home. If something happens to me, I want to know that her and my kids are going to be taken care of for the rest of their life. And in order to do that, to have that peace of mind, I need to have a certain amount of insurance. The other side, and, and sort of something to think about, and something that I always kind of struggled with is, as my wife stopped working, I always thought, well, I don't need insurance on her, a life insurance policy on her, because if something happens to her, I'm still going to be able to work. But the problem is, if something happened to my wife, I'd be emotionally devastated. I would run into a, a time where I'd need a lot of time off of work. And so there would be loss of wages of some sort. And so I would need time to take care of my kids, get the house in order, and that would take time. So just because she doesn't provide an income doesn't need that the spouse doesn't need some sort of life insurance on them also. But it is so critical that the main provider and the family has enough insurance to cover if something were to happen. That's a great point. And actually, I think another reason why you might want a policy on on your wife is, I mean, she's doing so much of the childcare, right? You probably want at least a small hundred to $250,000 policy to cover the cost of childcare because you have to go work. If right. she's not around, someone's got to take care of your kids. Yeah, our complete schedule as a family changes. I mean, I'm doing drop-offs in the morning. I'm They're going there five days a week. I mean, everything would change, and that would be very, very difficult, and that would have some emotional effect. And I think that's really, really underrated is that emotional impact it's going to have. I don't think anyone can predict how you're going to feel at that moment. So making sure that your finances are taken care of to where you can really heal and all of that other stuff is just really, really important. Yeah. I think it's underrated. You would have to get yourself in an emotional position to get back to work. And that can take some time. Sure. It could take a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people that we see come in here, you know, they just have a small policy through work and haven't put a lot of thought into it. And that could be really emotionally devastating to take that stance. I had a really good, sorry, Matt, I had just a really good statistic that I found on life insurance that MarketWatch did, but it states that 84% of Americans say that they potentially need life insurance. They respond that they need it, but only 59% actually own it. That's a pretty big gap of people that think they need it, but that actually own the life insurance. And I think that's kind of alarming or a you know, red flag for people to look into. And life insurance has gotten a bad rap because of all the permanent whole life and policies that are just written so poorly. But, you know, to to get a term policy is relatively cheap. It's very easy to get nowadays. There's just really no excuse to not have a policy that's can protect your family. Sure. If you have young kids look into a term policy, it's pretty much a no brainer. All right. So our next rule of thumb has to do with home buying. And what this rule of thumb says is your home payment should be around 20 to 28% of your gross income. And when we mean your home payment, what we mean is your principal interest taxes and insurance. So that would pretty much cover the total cost of your home. One mistake a lot of people make is they look at just the principal payment and forget that they're also being paying property taxes They might have a PMI or homeowner's insurance, and there's also interest on the loan, right, for the mortgage. Mm -hmm. So 
a household income, let's take 100,000, again, it's a nice easy example then, would have at max around 28,000 a year to spend on housing costs. And that breaks down to 2,300 a month. I think this is a great rule of thumb to help you keep your, your housing expenses in line. I'm though very against people rushing into buying houses. I think the biggest mistake people make is they try and buy a house because it's what their parents did or it's the so-called American dream and they end up with a large mortgage payment and they're stuck in it for 30 years. Right. And all the expenses that come with owning a home. Right. I mean, I'm personally not a homeowner, but Brent, I've heard quite a few expenses out of you in the last few months. Right. There's always something going on, something that needs to be fixed, unexpected expenses that come up due to owning a home. Yeah, totally. Uh, Josh, what do you think? I really love this rule of thumb just because coming from the CFP board, it it is a little bit more conservative and I agree with you. Uh, A lot of people rush into purchasing a home and I just love the rule because it is more conservative because I feel like a lot of even family, friends, clients, when they go to buy a house, the percentage that they can afford is based off of their max according to their income, not necessarily their lifestyle or their overall budget. So being more conservative is good. And I can kind of give an example of, you know, you walk into the bank to give a mortgage and they're going to say, we can lend you, you know, on a monthly basis up to 45% of your income. That's a big difference from the 28% that the CFP is telling you just relatively generally if you're comparing them. So I think that I I really, really, out of all of them, this might be my favorite because it is a very conservative and putting people in a better position for homeownership going forward. So the way that rule works is, do they use gross income? Yeah, depending on the company. But yeah, they'll look at gross income um, and they have their calculation to calculate what your monthly income is. So let's say it's 2000 So you use really small, easy numbers, $2,000 of income. They'll say they'll lend you up to $1,000 of mortgage liability expense. So, or, you know, a little less than that. And you could say 950 or 45 to 50% of what your overall income is to come up with that number. So it, it is a big difference, you know, than the 28% of your gross income you know, comparing it to 45%. Are they including the potential insurance costs or the property tax costs in that number? Yeah, most of them do depending on the lender because, you know, let's say you're not putting 20% down, then you have to impound and you have private mortgage insurance. So the whole payment does have to go in there. So I'd say for the most part, yes, it is included, but still a lot higher of a percentage. Do you see a lot of people borrowing at those higher percentages? Yeah, I think right now, actually, you know, getting ready for the show, the average right now is about 36%. Right. Um, and, you know, we're using the the rule of thumb of being around 28% of, of gross income, but the average in America is about 36%. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, even from my experience at the bank, you're seeing a lot of people go to that max number because they want the bigger house. They, they expect to generate more income in the future, get raises or advance in their careers. So they're like, we can afford it. So when I was at the bank, I saw a lot of people go to that max. And, you know, they feel a lot of pressure. I mean, if you ever met with a real estate agent, they want to put you in the biggest house, which, you know, there's good and bad to that. But got to make that commission. (laughs) Yeah, commission. Yeah, but there's obviously good and bad to that. But, you know, there's just a lot of pressure to buy a bigger house and have a bigger mortgage payment. Yeah, I love this rule of thumb. 
I would add another little personal rule of thumb that I, I think that if you have debt, you shouldn't be buying a home. If you have credit card debt, if you have student loan debt, pay that debt off first, and then you could take down the good debt, which would be considered mortgage debt. Take life in stages. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I like that too. Ready to move on to the next one? No, I think we have, uh, Brent, what, love or hate for the mortgage rule? I actually, I love it. It's a great rule of thumb to follow. And I think what it can do is prevent people from getting into financial trouble in the future. Like you said, if some, if your debts are all paid off and then you go buy a home, but then you're getting a home where you're overextending yourself, there's so many unforeseen expenses that come with owning a home that you know you could be two or three years down the road and now you've racked up all this debt because you didn't follow this simple basic rule. And like you said, Josh, so many people want the bigger house, the better, they want more. You know, I almost sort of fell in this trap years ago where I wanted to get a new house. I was going to buy the bigger home and then came to my senses because I have two great advisors that are sitting across from me and said, well, are you going over this rule of thumb? The answer is yes. Do you need bigger and better? The answer is no. I don't need bigger and better. I like a smaller home. I like keeping things simple. And so if you follow this and and that could have got me into a lot of financial trouble, who knows? I'm more comfortable staying in this 28% range. And I think many people should actually follow that. They don't need bigger and better. Life is already expensive as it is. Stick with this rule because it will keep you in a, in a nice constraint with your finances. Can we talk about your personal finances for a second? Sure. And you also did something that was really cool and more people should do this. Instead of buying the bigger home, didn't you refi to a 15-year? Yeah, I was able to look at my budget, saw that I could refi my loan down, was able to get a lower rate because I went to a 15-year loan. With where rates were and with where the money situation was with the loan, we were able to, uh, I had a great mortgage expert, someone that knew a lot about mortgages sitting across from me. So he was able to, to talk. We worked out all the numbers, calculated everything out, made sense for me to sort of buy it down a little bit at the time. And so everything really worked out where I basically was able to break down the loan to a much shorter term, didn't need bigger and better, and still do not regret staying in my home. I, I, I did not need to buy a bigger home. That's an awesome story. Thanks for the shout out. (laughs) Really cool story. And for those, if we can just explain that a little easier, that essentially means that Brent's home is going to be paid off in 15 years. Yep. And you apply a little bit of extra and you amortize the loan and you, you work on a calculator and you crunch the numbers and all of a sudden you can see, Hey, well, if I just pay a little bit extra, we can cut this down to 12. It saves this much in interest. And you know, every advisor's expertise is different. And, it, you know, as a group, we all have some different expertises. And, and it was extremely helpful in that situation. And, and I feel like it's just another strategy for building wealth. I mean, you're creating, you know, more equity in the home, which is another asset too, by paying it off sooner and giving you more options for when you do want to, you know, if your family's growing or big, buy that bigger house, you're just in a such better position to do so. And I love being in meetings with clients and we're talking about mortgages and we're talking about houses and then we come to these difficult decision making processes and then we bring Josh in or we bring Matthew in and we add a a meeting of the minds together to really come to a good conclusion because it brings out so many options. It's so helpful. You may think of option one and two on the surface, you know, but bringing in somebody else also helps tremendously. Yeah. And creating that that specific plan for you like like you did in your life and it's worked out seems like it's worked out pretty well for you. Yeah, I mean, I could have made the mistake that so many people make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's good that we're eating our own cooking, right? Absolutely. All right, moving on to the next rule of thumb. This one has to do with retirement. 
And I like this rule of thumb. It's a good starting point. But what it is, is whatever your desired retirement income is, you take that number and you multiply it by 25. And the amount you get is the amount that you should have saved for retirement when you retire. So let's put, let's put some numbers behind it. So if you want your retirement income to be $100,000 a year in retirement, say at age 65, then you multiply that by 25 and you come up with 2.5 million. By the time you're 65 and ready to retire, you need to have 2.5 million put aside to get that 100,000 in income. Like I said, I love it because it gives a guidepost. Brent, what do you think? Do you love it, hate it? I like it. I can't say I love it. I can't say I hate it. The reason why I do like it though, and if I had to pick, I'd say I love it between the two because it is a guidepost. It does set some targets. It does set some goals. The problem with it is it is very general. People can still have state and city county jobs where they're getting pensions. They may not need to save that much. But for people who are on a more general fixed income in retirement, yes, saving these amounts of money can be very helpful and puts them on a target goal. That's a great point. Yeah, I would say that this is for people who are going to be paying into Social Security only. Yep, absolutely. Josh, love it, hate it? I say I love it because, again, it's like planning for the, the worst case scenario. Like, you know, let's say that there's no more pensions and Social Security went away. Like, and it's all gone you're not even accounting for that in the projection. You know, we can get very detailed with the retirement projections with your income that you can rely on in the future. But this is just giving you that number. Like if you want your income to be X, you need to save Y. And, you know, really good for especially like younger people who are want that idea of how much should be in that account. We can work backwards of saying you need 2.5 million and let's show you how to get there. So I guess I lean, love it with this rule of thumb. Yeah, it's better than not saving, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? Save, 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 invest correctly, and have a plan to hit your goals. Yeah, I agree. I I think this was a a great show. And all all these rules of thumb, I mean, they're great to follow, and they're good good guideposts. We can't really hate any of them. I mean, I, I guess if we dislike one of them, it was the budgeting, right? Right. But other than that, if you have kids or you, you depend on your spouse, get a term life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Save for retirement. And don't spend too much on your house. Josh? Yeah, all, all good rules. I think we're going to have to eventually add some topics where I can hate some of them like yeah. completely and just be really strong about that hate. But all of these were, were, were good that, you know, good starting points for people. I think rules of thumbs in general are really good. I don't think all rules of thumb are for everybody, but I think a lot of them can be tweaked and adjusted to apply to most people. So rules of thumbs are there for a reason. I think people should use them, help them plan and get and set targets. But I think rules of thumb in general are very good. I agree. All right. So I think we're going to talk a little bit about McDonald's. Are we going to do, or do you love it or hate it? Or Well, I mean, not really. Brent, you got a story to tell us today, don't you? Well, the movie Toy Story recently came out and we took our kids to go see Toy Story 4 so McDonald's is having, with their Happy Meal, a Toy Story toy. My kids, my daughter's three, my son is five, they've never been to McDonald's in their whole life. Are you, are you serious? Not one time. It's oh. an American institution. <laughs> we've never stepped foot into McDonald's. I'm not a big McDonald's guy. Just we don't eat there. And we've never taken our kids there for a Happy Meal. 
I think even if the grandparents asked to take them there, we'd probably tell them no anyway. So you've been robbing them of Happy Meals their whole life so far. Yeah, I mean, you could say that. <laughs> so, so my wife calls me yesterday and says that she was taking them to McDonald's to get a Happy Meal because they have the Toy Story toy. And so my kids thought that was the greatest thing. I mean, they got a toy with their food. How happy were they? Oh, they. So Toy Story and McDonald's have 10 toys now that come with the Happy Meals. There's 10 different toys. So my son is like, okay, well, I have one toy now. And if you get all 10 toys, it builds like this little caravan. So he's counting that he needs to go nine more times to McDonald's so he can build the whole set. I don't even want him going to McDonald's one time. So now he thinks he needs to go to McDonald's nine more times. Yeah, that's how they get you, man. So, I remember that Monopoly game. I used to go every other day and house a 20-piece McNugget <laughs> trying to win that million. So last night online, I was looking on Amazon and ways for us to be able to buy the toys without <laughs> taking the kids. To, uh, I, I was actually kind of making funny that they haven't been, but then when you tell the story of how McDonald's like ropes you into going back 10 times, I'm like, oh, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing that you hadn't well, taken them so far. I, and I found the set online for $60 for the 10 pieces. You can order them online. I'm like, whoa. Is, so, it, is it really worth that? So instead of feeding your kids pink slime, you're going to pay 60 bucks to order the set online. Yeah, you know, it's definitely an option. I don't want them going to McDonald's 10 times. Did you have any French fries? I didn't get a go because <laughs> I, I was working. But, oh. they, but they enjoyed the French fries, and I think I deprived my wife of McDonald's also. Oh. So she was excited to have a cheeseburger and French fries also. What's uh, Landon and Lakin's favorite Toy Story characters? Landon loves Buzz, and Lakin likes Jesse and Bo Peep. Oh, very cool. I remember watching Toy Story. I love Toy Story. I'm going to have to see Toy Story 4 here soon. Yeah, they're all really good, and it's good that they finally came out with the fourth one. Matt, are you going to go to McDonald's after this? I mean, talking about McDonald's is taking me back to my fat kid days, and I could see an extra large fry and a 20 box of nuggets in my future. You what? better throw in a mini cheeseburger in there, too. How, how long has it been since you've been to McDonald's, Matthew? I don't remember the last time. Actually, you know what? I'm lying. I think when I was at the river like five years ago, before we went on to the actual river, we stopped and picked up McDonald's for breakfast. So that would have been probably five years ago, but I don't remember the last time I had it previously. Yeah, we have a pretty strict eating schedule in the office, which I'm sure will come out over time. But McDonald's would not be acceptable in our office if we brought it in. Like Somebody would get crucified for doing oh, that. Oh, yeah. It, I'm excited to talk about the lunches here and the restrictions on lunch to bring into the office. But McDonald's, I think, is probably up there with one of the worst things you can bring into the office for lunch, right? Just to set the record straight, I mean, who's the most judgmental person here in the office about food? Matthew, by far. Oh, by far. I can't even bring a sandwich in the office without getting looked at. I kind of judge you for that, too, because we just we killed all the bread in the office, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I put some rice in my meal, and it's like <laughs> it's like I've, I'm eating at the worst fast food chain. Yeah, I'm a big food shamer. Yeah, you are. You've been like that for a long time. And sometimes we just want breakfast burritos in the morning, man. Well, when you've been overindulged the night before, breakfast burritos are called for, <laughs> but they're not called for every day. Yeah, I mean that that's happened one time in the last two years. It was an LASC game. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one's coming up too. So breakfast burritos. Coming I'm, soon. 
I mean, Matt even has his snack at the same time, his tea at the same time. I swear there's an alarm clock going off for him to eat at there's the same time. There's an alarm clock going off right now. I'm two minutes past snack time. we got to close the show up. <laughs> yeah, and you, there's alarm clock on the show. There's alarm clock on your food. There's alarm clock on everything. Any parting thoughts? Rules of thumb are great. Keep following them. Yeah, if you have no plan or haven't taken the time, keep following these uh, rules of thumb. But create a plan that's going to fit around these rules of thumbs also so it all comes together. I agree. What about you, Matt? You got any closing thoughts? Yeah, create the plan that fits your lifestyle. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Retirement Plan Playbook. If you're enjoying the show, please rate it and leave a review on the Apple podcast page. It would really help us out. And for more information about the podcast, you could go to rpawealth.com and click on our podcast page. We'll, We'll have show notes and you can also stream the show from your computer. Thank you and have a great day. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcast. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.